Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and also Stephen Jones, who's our guest chief executive from UK Finance, the trade body. Down the line, we have Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and also from the US, our investment banking correspondent, Laura Noonan, and our US financial correspondent, Alistair Gray. This week, we'll be talking about what lies ahead for the UK banking industry. Secondly, a look at UBS as it trials new artificial intelligence in the trading room. And finally, a preview of second quarter results from the US banks. First, though, to the outlook for UK banking. And Stephen Jones is just setting up a new trade body. This is UK Finance, which takes over from six predecessor organisations, including the British Banks Association. Stephen's with us now. Stephen, welcome and congratulations on the new role. First off, what are your priorities? What lies ahead for a trade organisation like yours? I suspect you're going to be juggling a lot of balls. Thank you, Patrick. Yes, we now represent around 300 of the leading firms based in the UK, providing finance, banking, markets and payments related services either in the UK or from the UK. And as such, the range of customers that our members represent is very, very broad from retail to SME to corporate to wholesale institutional, etc. So we're not just a banking organisation, although banking is a very important core of what we do. Our priorities are pretty clear. We want to continue on the journey of helping our members serve customers better and regaining trust. We want to ensure that we're able to, through our members, support the economy, to enhance competitiveness, to embrace innovation. But also, I think we want to place quite a big emphasis, given the increasing importance on fighting financial crime across fraud money laundering, organised crime, terrorism and cyber, all of which are important threats to the economy as a whole. And therefore, within the financial services sector, we need to ensure that we're playing our part in delivering an operationally resilient backbone. And Brexit, I imagine that must dominate a lot of the conversations you're having with your members at the moment. Brexit's an incredibly high up agenda item, probably the most significant, certainly for those who provide financial services to customers based in continental Europe from operations based in the UK. So for our members who serve wholesale, institutional and corporate customers, the Brexit agenda is important. We're clear that the Brexit vote has happened that separation of the UK will happen, that we have an Article 50 timetable which is now running through to March 2019. And our focus is very much on seeking to help the negotiators in understanding the range of end state options which would optimise the ability of our members to continue to serve their customers from the UK in continental Europe and also then to consider what transitional arrangements are necessary such that contingency plans on a worst-case basis do not need to be activated. 
As you know, um, most UK financial institutions have been required to submit worst case contingency plans to the regulator. I think the due date is this Friday. And I'm sure that that is focusing the mind for many of our members on what they might have to do by March 2019 in order to be able to provide continuity of services to their customers if there isn't a deal. And there's a lot of work going into that at the moment. And when do you see those buttons being pressed? I mean, when do you think we'll first see a bank actually moving a team of people to, let's say, Frankfurt or Dublin? And conversely, how late do you think other members might leave it? I think that's very much down to the individual institutions in terms of what they already have on the ground, what their approvals and regulatory licenses are locally in other jurisdictions in Europe. And therefore, I would see this as a continuum rather than, a, you know, there being a set date. A number of the larger institutions I've spoken to talk about the importance of having some clarity on what transition looks like by the end of this year, because without that, the lead time of 15 months to set up and operate in the wholesale markets in particular is in itself very, very short. And therefore, they feel that they would need to start making the move by the end of this year, absent much greater clarity on what transition and then end state looks like. And that, of course, is a huge sticking point because Michel Barnier, the chief EU negotiator, has made clear he's not going to talk about transition until towards the end of that period, which may actually serve the interests of his native France rather well if they're able to attract business from the UK by forcing that button to be pressed early. We will see. Let me just change focus for a second and bring in Emma, because Emma, you wrote an interesting story yesterday reporting on a speech by Sam Woods, the deputy governor of the Bank of England, warning essentially about bad behaviour by banks cheating on the rules and starting to do some of the bad stuff that was done by banks pre-crisis. Tell us a bit more about that. That's right. So Mr Woods said that he has found evidence of some banks, building societies and lenders ultimately meeting the letter of regulation but attempting to circumvent the spirit of it. So he said he's seen regulatory arbitrage whereby certain lenders are attempting to perhaps alleviate the burden of capital requirements and ultimately boost profit. And this comes at a time when some of the capital requirements upon banks are quite onerous following the financial crisis. A lot of regulation has been imposed to prevent a rerun of the 2008 economic meltdown. So among the practices that Mr Woods has highlighted, he has seen the banks and, and perhaps some building societies employ, is the use of special purpose vehicles as a way to hold certain riskier assets and take them off the balance sheet, perhaps to free up capital. Now, this isn't necessarily problematic in itself, except for the fact that he has spotted a material build-up of credit risk in some cases. And so this is an early warning sign, if you will. He's also pointed out the use of funding maturities, whereby banks are seeking funding that matures beyond the time horizon used to calculate certain liquidity ratios as a way to perhaps boost profitability. So banks, for example, that attract deposits with only 30 days notice have to hold certain liquid assets against them as an insurance policy. But these are typically low yielding in the current environment and so can drag on profitability. So he's also flagged this as a practice being used by lenders to circumvent the spirit of regulation. Can I bring you in there, Stephen, because I just wonder what role, if any, a trade organisation like UK Finance has to play in this whole area. Is it your job to 
either push back against what the Bank of England is saying or encourage your members to follow the spirit of the rules as well as the letter? Well, I think the first thing that we can usefully do on behalf of members is to understand specifically where Sam was coming from with his comments and whether he was making a systemic comment, I don't believe he was, or whether he was making comments about practices that he has seen emerge on a non-systemic basis in individual institutions and which he wishes to ensure do not become prevalent across the system. I suspect, and I don't wish to prejudge this, but I suspect he was making the latter point, not the former. And I think in those circumstances, I can, on behalf of our members, clarify, make sure that across the membership, the point that he is making about the spirit of the rules needing to be complied with, not just the technical letter, clearly, and when necessary and in private, call out examples of bad behaviour within our membership in order to ensure that we are not seen as a trade association to be, quotes, defending the indefensible. That is something that UK Finance will not do, and we will work very closely with the regulator and cooperatively with them to understand when they make important interventions like this that we address proactively the issues that they raise. Similarly, there's been a concerted series of announcements by the Financial Policy Committee, the PRA and the FCA regarding their perception of an emerging consumer credit bubble, in inverted commas. And again, I think the same remarks apply. I think there are examples of individual institutions where possibly underwriting standards have been relaxed too much. In those circumstances, I think that's a matter for individual institutions and their dialogue with their supervisors rather than that being a systemic issue. But across the industry, UK finance can make sure that the concerns of the regulator that this not be a pan-system issue of weak underwriting doesn't become prevalent. Okay, Stephen, thank you very much for that. Let's move on to our second topic of the day and a look at UBS as it thinks about putting robots in its trading room. We're joined down the line now by Martin Arnold, our banking editor. Martin, calling from your holiday, which goes beyond the call of duty. Thank you for that. But um, you did want to tell us all about your trip to uh, UBS's new London headquarters in Broadgate and uh, how you went to see some robots. I did, yes. I met uh, the chief operating officer of UBS's investment bank, a lady called Beatrice Martin Jimenez, and she showed me one of their robots and talked to me about two robots or artificial intelligence programs that they have introduced for the first time to their investment bank. And they think this is one of the first times that any investment banks have introduced artificial intelligence onto the trading floor. And the two systems, one is quite simple. It's a system that takes client requests for allocating large foreign exchange transactions between different funds and entities and executes that automatically and takes a process that takes a human about 45 minutes and does it in about two minutes. And that's a very robotic process. It looks for the emails from the clients, executes on them and processes them. But it doesn't really learn. It's not machine learning. The second one is much more interesting because it's machine learning and it's in their equity derivatives business. And it's coming up with trading strategies for trading volatility. And the artificial intelligence robot uses machine learning and it processes a huge amount of data about the state of equity markets and what's going on to come up with trading strategies of how to trade volatility in equity markets. So I started off by asking Beatrice Martin Jimenez about how UBS had taken this decision. 
I think there has been a lot of talk about you know automation and robotics, particularly in the back office uh, for yeah. banks, right? Yeah. And I think uh, the reason why we've seen that in the back office before is because you know back office tends to not always to be fair, but I think tends to have more process oriented tasks, right? Mm-hmm. So they are more repetitive. You can do a rule book to tell you know exactly after this you, you do this and then after that you do the other thing and then you check here 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 if yes then you go there and so on so it's easy to extract a rule book to say this is yeah. the process you follow and you know let's do it that way. I was previously in front office for the majority of my career to be fair and I thought that there are some parts in front office where you know we do follow some certain processes and. Those processes are necessary for front office to do. I think depending on the regulatory requirements, they need to sit in front office. However, they are exposed to human errors, of Mm -hmm. course, like anything you will do manually. And also, I don't think they are highly added value. So they could be robotized. And we started a conversation with the front office guys probably like 18 months ago or so, I will say now, where we said, okay, let's think about what are the processes that either sales or trading people do on a regular basis that we could just, you know, put a robot to do? And uh, we've done a lot of work, to be fair, together with the Deloitte at the time. We did a lot of, you know, deep dives and, and looked at the businesses, and we found a number of processes that were suitable to be robotized. I then asked Beatrice Martin Jimenez to explain why UBS is doing this and whether it was all about really getting rid of humans and replacing them with robots. Is it all about job cuts? The reality is that, you know, every single job in life is attached to a number of administration tasks or more mundane tasks, however you want to call it, that are not highly added value but need to be done and need to be done in a certain place, in this case, in front office. Yeah. And so I think, you know, salespeople and traders, uh, they feel that at times they just spend a lot of time doing those things in detriment of using their time to either cover clients or be more effective in the job they do. And that was the whole idea about robotics for us. The, the idea about robotics for us is an idea of reducing manual errors or human errors, having a better operating environment. It's an idea to be more effective and more productive for front office people. But it's certainly not, I don't think we have looked at robotics in a way to reduce headcount. Okay. That's never been... Is I it think, about cost savings? When you say more effective and productive... Productivity. I don't think it's so much about cost savings as it is about higher revenue. So I asked Beatrice Martin Jimenez to explain whether this was just the first step, and she was pretty clear that yes, it was. These were the first steps in what she saw as a much greater expansion of artificial intelligence on the trading floor. But she did think that it's going to be a long time, many years before artificial intelligence was given free reign to trade securities without having humans overseeing them and verifying trading strategies. So it's going to be a long time before we have fully automated robots trading in the markets. But it is a first step by UBS, and a lot more of this, I think, we'll be seeing around the world. Well, it's definitely one to watch. Thanks very much, Martin. And for our final segment, let's go over now to New York, where Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, has been talking to US financial correspondent Alistair Gray about the upcoming second quarter results season. 
So Laura, we've got bank earnings season in the US about to kick off uh, with a deluge of numbers from some of the biggest banks in the world on Friday. There's been a bit of caution going into the season, particularly about the trading and investment banking operations. What are people looking out for? So all the caution really centres around the fixed income currency and commodities business and people are expecting revenue there to be down around 16% year on year right across the banks. Now, 16% drop year on year sounds big, it sounds bad, it is bad, but in terms of it being big, this is a very volatile business and it certainly it has been a very volatile business for the last few years. So to put a 16% fall in fixed income currency and commodities revenue into context, if we think back to the first quarter of 2016, we saw Goldman Sachs had a 46% fall in fixed income currency and commodities revenue. So this is a business line which tends to be a very volatile one. The other reason people maybe may not be as concerned about this as the headline number suggests is that it is compared to a very good second quarter of 2016. Because if you think back to this time last year, there was a lot of volatility around the aftermath of the Brexit vote in the UK and also the political scene here in the US when we saw Trump really gathering a lot of support around this time. So there was a lot of volatility then. Volatility leads to increased trading and increased trading leads to increased revenue for banks. This year now we're seeing the opposite. Things have been very calm on the macro front so banks aren't benefiting from that big boom in volatility and that means that we are expecting fixed income currency and commodities revenue to come in lower. If we look at the other two key planks of investment banks, we have investment banks which is the advisory businesses, those are expected to come in down around 3%, which is neither here nor there. I mean, 3% is a very modest fall. Then you also have the equities piece, the other side of the big trading businesses. That's expected to come in roughly even year on year. So certainly fixed income is where all of the attention is going to be focused. But I would just stress that it is against a very high base last year and it is only one quarter. If the results are pretty weak, but not catastrophic, as you say, how big a concern is that for investors? Because there has been this long-standing question, hasn't there, about how much the weakness in FIC is cyclical and how much of it is a structural problem. Will this give any ammunition for those who argue that there's a big um, structural problem with this business? I mean, I don't see this when it comes to FIC in particular as being anything to get too excited about. To have come off 16% from a very volatile quarter a year ago is not a particularly concerning thing. Certainly FIC is going to be a smaller business now than it was in the pre-crisis days and we all already knew that. So I don't see anything here that's going to cause anyone to change their FIC strategy. Then if you look out to the broader investment bank businesses, investment banking is also not looking great, but it isn't too bad either. And it's quite normal to have things going up 10%, things going down 10%, because you are talking about only a three-month period and you are talking about a situation where a lot of the fees for investment banking can be quite lumpy. So if you have some big deals going through in this quarter, that can easily swing the dial 5%, 3%. It isn't hard to do. So I think we see a normal level of volatility across investment bank at this point, which probably isn't too dissimilar to what you're seeing in the retail banking market, Alistair. Yeah, expectations in the retail banking side have also actually been tapered a bit. There's still been growing caution, particularly in the area of loan growth. This has been very important for banks while interest rates have been low. And that slowed quite sharply after the election. There were a lot of questions about whether companies were still demanding funds to the extent they had been. People had expected that to pick up as companies got more comfortable with policy uncertainty in Washington. But uh, actually, some of the forecasts for second quarter loan growth are also weak. And in fact, UBS has penciled in even weaker figures for second quarter loan growth. That's driven by um, a weakness in commercial and industrial lending. Yes, yeah, so I guess 
the two key questions going in would be one around the loan demand, which you've already covered, and then also net interest margins. So people had expected those to recover strongly once the Fed began to move rates. Doesn't seem to really have paid off so far. So what can we expect from the second quarter there? We did see a bit of improvements in uh, the very closely watched metric called NIMS. That's the net interest margin, the crucial measure of profitability on on lending. That ticked up about seven, eight basis points in the first quarter. People are expecting a similar level of improvement in the second quarter. The dynamics here are um, pretty obviously higher interest rates allow banks to charge borrowers more. The big question is how deposits have have responded. It's obviously good for banks if they're able to keep deposit rates unchanged and so far so good from the bank's perspective, not so good for savers. But we haven't really seen yet much competitive pressure on banks to push up deposit rates. As the Fed has been gradually ratcheting up base rates, it becomes harder for banks to toe the line there. One of the biggest questions for the results season will be for the executives, how much longer are you going to be able to keep deposit rates so low? We've already seen some movement on the commercial side. It's a question of when is that going to spread to the wider deposit retail base because when that happens it will become less of a no-brainer that higher interest rates are automatically great news for banks. Well people will have the bank's answers to some of these questions on Friday morning when we have JP Morgan, Citibank and Wells Fargo are all going to report second quarter results early in the morning in the US so that'll give some food for thought into the weekend. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma Dunkley and Stephen Jones, our guest from UK Finance here in the studio. Also thanks to Laura and Alistair in the New York Bureau and to Martin Arnold, our banking editor. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.